people live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello, and welcome to Angry Planet. I am Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Gold. A million years ago, a small man stared into the sky and said, The plane! The plane! Today, we're all shouting balloon. What's going on, and what kind of threat are we actually facing? To answer that, joining us today is Stephanie Carvin, who is an associate professor of international relations at Carleton University and a contributing author to the Center for International Governance Innovation. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. For for the Gen Zers in the audience, um, I feel like I need to explain. Yeah, please do. The, the terribly Gen X <laughs> reference that you just deployed on us in the opening. It's even older than me. It's almost a boomer reference. There, uh, it is almost a boomer reference. There's a television show in the 70s called The Love Boat. Um, Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island? It was Fantasy yeah. Island. Okay, yeah, sorry. Fantasy See, Island. I get all these. I get all of these hour-long fantasy dramas from the 70s confused. Uh, Peter Dinklage starred in a made-for-TV film uh, on HBO about that actor's life. Uh, and we will move on now to Balloons. <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, I'm not on here to talk about, you know, 1970s sitcoms uh, and TV shows, although we could. Right. I, I would be very happy to do that. But yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm not sure I could tell those two shows apart. Yeah, thank you. Thank well, you. thank you. you know, I'm going to I'm willing to bet that I'm older than both of you, <laughs> perhaps combined. Um, OK, so let's get back to spy balloons. Um, so what's a spy balloon and what do you think they really do? So a spy balloon, I mean, apparently they're a thing. OK, um, let's let's just put that out there that. Um, you know, we have heard, you know, this seemed very novel when this happened about, uh, what, a week and a half ago now, almost two weeks ago. And, you know, everyone's kind of looking in the sky and seeing the spy balloon. Um, it, it does seem something out of like an HG Wells novel in some ways. It reminds me of, you know, in the, uh, late 1800s, there were actually laws. A past about uh, aerial bombardments from balloons. So, you know, so the idea of, of balloons playing a role is not, entirely foreign but the idea that this would be happening in 2023 is uh, i think a little bizarre which is probably why we're talking about it and but apparently this has been something that china's been doing for some time um you know some of the reports out of taiwan say oh yeah we're, we're used to balloons flying over us all the time um there are you know reports that the u.s has been tracking balloons over the middle east uh, for a number of years, so not just North America. And um, this seems to be some, there, there seems to be some kind of intelligence collection or information collection that China is doing that they seem to be getting some kind of benefit out of, but it's not entirely clear what. China is basically saying, look, this is a weather balloon program. Uh, you know, we're just doing scientific research. But I think what's important to recognize is that China's not always made a clear line between what is 
a research um, scientific expedition and an intelligence collecting expedition. And, um, you know, I'm Canadian. We have in Canada seen um, Chinese research icebreaking vessels go through our territory. And, you know, again, China will say those are for scientific purposes, but clearly they're also probably looking for information that would assist their national interests. So um, even if this is some kind of weather balloon program, it, there probably is an intelligence component to it. But it's not clear to me what exactly what kind of intelligence you would get, considering the vast array of intelligence apparatus activities that, that China regularly engages in across the West. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, I've been kind of leaving the, looking at this whole situation, scratching my head going but why? Like, what was the, I guess they keep coming back to what was the pitch meeting for this? Like, what was the boardroom meeting where someone had a PowerPoint and said, yes, I have the solution. It is balloons. And um, I just would have loved to have been in that room and seeing what that conversation looked like. Let's back up a little bit. Um, I kind of want to go over the basics of, of what has happened in the last two weeks, because we had. All right. So the the, the, the big news story. Uh, was it about two weeks ago now? Was the um, was a was a balloon spotted uh, over the Midwest in America? Floats for several days, shot down by an F twenty two firing a Sidewinder missile uh, above Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, then Canada said they were tracking one, right? Uh, yes. Uh, and they said that actually that they were tracking one in a suspected second. Right. So Canada was actually the first to come out and say, "No, there's there's more than one balloon here, guys." Uh, shot down over Lake Huron uh, by F-16s. They missed the first shot, hit the second one. Second one is the one that's kind of, that one's kind of weird though, because it's like a weird shape and no one's quite sure who owns it or who it belonged to. Um, yeah, there's, there's four balloons here, right? right? Um, so there was the original one that was shot down rather spectacularly over, over Myrtle beach, you know, USA, USA, fair enough. Uh, and then there was one that the United States shot down uh, near Alaska, which they're still trying to recover. Apparently it landed on some ice and the conditions are very hard to go there. There was a third balloon, which is then shot down um, in a remote area of the Northern Yukon. Again, very, very hard to get to. Not a lot of infrastructure up there. And then finally the fourth balloon, which was on Sunday of, of this week, um, uh, you know, early February, the, uh, the balloon was shot down over Lake Huron. And you're right. All of these balloons are different sizes, shapes. And what's curious to me is they're all flying at different altitudes. The original balloon itself was flying at about 60,000 feet. And that is interesting because it's getting close to what, um, the U.S. military and I think scientists call near space, right? It's an area where it's too high really for planes to fly. There's not enough oxygen. Uh, it can't really support a lot of activities up there. So there's some concern that there's military potential there for things like, I guess, balloons, communications, things like that. So it, it, it kind of makes sense to have a balloon at that 60,000 feet. And it was big and round and we all saw it. And then, but these other objects that have been shot down, and we should be clear, like, you know, they haven't definitively been called balloons. They haven't definitively been identified as Chinese. We, we should be careful about this. Uh, they've all been described as very different. The one the first over, one, the first one was uh, the Chinese. Clearly owned a balloon. <laughs> yes, the Chinese owned it. The first but one. I don't think they've owned the other three. They have not owned the other three. No. Right. Right. And so I, I, and I don't know if they're just not wanting to, or if it's in fact something else we, we, we don't know. Um, the, the one over Yukon, for example, was cylindrical shaped. 
and as you said, the one of her Lake Huron uh, was octagon, is described as an octagon, which is a really bizarre uh, shape if you think about it, but, um, it, you know, be, it, I would love to see a picture of it and what it, what it actually looked like. But yeah, that's, that's the, uh, the object that's believed to fall. So they're all kind of different shapes and sizes. Um, the, while the original was flying at the 60,000 feet, the one over Lake Huron was flying at 20,000 feet, which actually does make it more of a risk to aircraft, uh, frankly. So, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of consistency and that just kind of raises more questions than, than, answers i think did do we then want to use the the pentagon terminology for these things is there technically unidentified aerial phenomena right <laughs> are you trying to say they're ufos i mean they are like in the strictest sense of the word i'm not saying they're aliens but they are ufos but aliens right? <laughs> let's use that internet meme yeah it's not aliens but no, I'm, def- I'm right, just just to be clear <laughs> for the angry planet listeners. On. I, I for, for one sec, I just want to be real yeah. clear. I'm not saying these things. I'm literally saying that these are not aliens. I'm literally saying that. Jason, sorry. I, okay, no, 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 no. I actually have a theory about the other three. The first one, China believes uh you know it has admitted it's theirs. I think the others are actually from a Bond villain. <laughs> <laughs> because if ever there was a Bond villain plan. This is it. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the, the the bizarre things to me, right? Is how little because like our near peer adversaries that could float a balloon over us uh, and not get picked up by NORAD until later and then destroyed, like presumably have satellite technology that can collect data m- much better than a balloon at high altitude, right? So yeah, I mean this is. <laughs> I mean, this is part of the, the bizarre thing. I mean, I like the Bond villain thesis just because apparently to take these things out, it requires a $400,000 Sidewinder missile, right? Like, mm-hmm. so every time we're shooting these things down, like, we're spending like millions of dollars. And that doesn't include like the cost of the plane, the cost of the fuel, and all these other things that, that kind of go into, into these operations. So can you bankrupt the United States with balloons? I mean, it's, it's a perfect Bond villain plot, if, if you think about it. <laughs> um, and uh, apparently the first one uh, missed at Lake Huron. So I'm sorry to that F-16 pilot. But apparently now somewhere around Lake Huron, there's a missing Sidewinder missile that someone may want to look into. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's again, it's not clear to me what intelligence you would gather using balloons. Uh, the first balloon uh, and, and like i guess i'm calling them balloons here before uh, i'm being lazy you're right they are unidentified aerial vehicles or or thing i don't that, that gives us uav that's not particularly useful but uh um, you know we, we don't know what these unidentified are. aerial phenomenon phenomenon right uap here we are um so these different objects that are flying um like, it, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. I mean, I have read reports that there have been motors seen on the original spy balloon, which gave it some kind of control that, you know, if you are flying over suspicious sites in Montana, you know, it does lend itself to that kind of activity. But, um, you know, the the kinds of we're still going to learn a lot more, I think, once these devices are collected and we can actually see what sensors were on them and, and what um, data they may have been collecting. But uh, so far, the first one, at least, they they believe it was collecting signals intelligence. And signals intelligence, you know, I'm, I'm assuming your audience is familiar with it, but just in case, it's any information that goes through the global information infrastructure. So any kind of digital file on your computer 
text message, email, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so it potentially has the capacity to collect that. But this is where, like, again, I'm just kind of scratching my head because I'm like, look, China has one of the most successful and robust cyber espionage operations on the planet, you know, and, you know, I'm not saying the U.S. or Canada or whatever doesn't do that. I mean, obviously we all do. So you know, this is just the way the system works. Um, but they also have, you know, a very good human intelligence network and they have a spy satellite program. So what what is it that you're getting from these balloons, a very overt means of collection that you're not getting from these other three robust programs that you have? So again, that's what I, I don't understand is, is what are you, are, are you just trying to see if you can operate a, some kind of spy collection in near space in case there's some kind of conflict and, and you're having trouble with your other kinds of means of collections? Is, is that what you're up to? It, it, other than that, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, I think, from a collection standpoint. So uh, actually, to not joke for a second, um, what if you're a country... Uh, we know the first one is China, but what if you're a country that can't afford satellites and, or can't launch them on your own, but you want this kind of intelligence? Um, you know, some things could be out there that we just simply weren't looking for. And let's say, you know, you're North Korea or some country even, well, you're not going to get poorer, but do you think that that's something that, um, you know, does that make more sense? I, again, I think it makes more sense for a country that doesn't have the vast capabilities that China has, right? And and that's something. So again, I think we should keep an open mind as to these other balloons and, and where they're from and uh, and that kind of thing. We do know the first one was from China. We don't know what's going on with these other ones, but and so I think we should be careful about it. Um, I don't I don't know if North Korea has a balloon capability. It might make more sense for them to to have something like that. Um, in terms of, it's, it's not clear to me what kind of intelligence sharing they would have with the Chinese. I, it's possible the Chinese would provide them with, uh, information about where various things are. But again, even like Google Maps, you know, that's like <laughs> really good. Like, does, does North Korea need to go through all of this or can they like just like use Google Maps, right? Like, um, can they just gather all the information in open source? I mean, if anything we've learned actually from the conflict in Russia and Ukraine is just the value of open source here. So, uh, again, like, I, I just don't understand the pitch, but you know, maybe I'm just not good at thinking outside the box. I think we should. I think we should also not rule out the possibility that it is exactly what the first one, at least, is exactly what China said it was. That it was like a weather balloon that drifted and got, you know, got caught up, got caught up in a jet stream and ended up over America. I think that that's not. We know that those programs exist. That people do float weather balloons. China floats weather balloons. Everyone floats weather balloons. And that balloons are hard to control at high altitudes and they get away from you. Like, I think that that is a reasonable possibility, right? I would agree with that. And actually, that's what my first for the first week, that was actually my assumption, right, was that this was probably I mean, because it's so bold. This is a balloon like that over that everyone can see over the United States. And so I thought, OK, and, you know, one of the things I think that we forget is like coincidences do happen. Like and authoritarian states make mistakes. We mm -hmm. always attribute absolutely everything we do to some kind of nefarious scheme or purpose. And that's a big mistake. Um, authoritarian regimes do, do 
screw up sometimes. Um, but like I said in the beginning, just be, even if it is a weather balloon, it doesn't preclude intelligence gathering capabilities. Right. right. Um, and I think that's an important thing. You, you don't see that. So, um, and if it was a weather balloon that had gone astray, they probably should have notified the United States um, that, Hey, this thing is entering into your territory. Please don't freak out and shoot it down with an F-22. Um, but um, that that's not what happened. And I mean, we can have a whole other conversation here. And I think it's actually really important about communication during this whole instance between the United States and China, uh, which has been very poor. And that's extremely concerning. But um, yeah, I, I don't think that that I don't think we should preclude that this is indeed a weather balloon. We're going to learn. A, we're going to learn more when this this comes out. But yeah, it's just like, again, it's just a lot of head scratching. And um well, we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that authoritarian powers make mistakes too. Actually, can we talk about that that communication breakdown? Because that's almost I'm almost more interested in that. Um, I think there's a lot of things going on with this with the balloon story with the UAP story that tell us a lot about what's going on at the Pentagon um, and it, with international relations right now. Um, and the fact that this happens, um, it's something and it's something that we've known. China has been doing for a while, right? There was there was at least three that we know of during the Trump administration or three that they fessed up to. Um, I'm going to guess that we have similar projects also going above mainland China, although I don't know, but we can talk about the Pentagon's balloon programs because there are quite a few. We use them in Afghanistan uh, and prosecuted a war criminal with them. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. Um, but... This thing happens, it gets shut down, right as Blinken is about to go over to Beijing and have talks. They use this as a pretext to cancel those talks. Uh, China comes out with a statement that's like, well, we didn't, we, Blinken was never coming anyway, so, you know, nothing was actually canceled. It's a very strange statement. Why, like, what do you make of the communication breakdown here and how it kind of speaks to Chinese, China and America relations more writ large at the moment? Because it feels bad. Yeah, no, I think that's it bad is is really kind of the, the bottom line up front, right? And I think you're right. I think this is actually where the main story here lies. I'm not worried about the balloon. I'm worried that during a potential misunderstanding of a military nature, there doesn't seem to have been great communication between the United States and China. And I think that's kind of what what, what scares me about this in the sense that the the fact was during the Cold War, one of the first agreements between the United States and the Soviet Union was a hotline agreement that, you know, there had been enough nuclear scares that everyone sat down and realized, OK, we need the leaders to communicate in a crisis to deescalate and prevent nuclear war from breaking out in a crisis. Right. So we're going to have this hotline agreement where both sides will agree to talk to each other in an event of these kinds of crises. We don't have at least to my knowledge, such an agreement with the Chinese, right? And this isn't the first time where there's tensions between the two countries and there's no communication whatsoever. The reporting is that, and I mean, I'm sure this is coming from Pentagon sources. So, you know, like, let's keep that in mind that they did try to call their Chinese counterparts and they're just simply not picking up the phone. And that concerns me because like in this case, okay, it's a balloon and maybe it's a little bit embarrassing. And, you know, as you say, China's now saying all these kinds of things like, oh, Lincoln wasn't coming or that, um, 
they're saying that well, the U.S. has 10 balloons over China right now, <laughs> which actually might be a thing, as you're, as you're going to point out. Um, but the fact is that um, we need to communicate in these kind of crises, because if we can't do that with a balloon, what's going to happen when the situation is far more tense and far more serious? And, you know, if I was in charge of diplomacy and no one should put me in charge of anything, frankly, but, you know, I mean, I think one of the diplomatic priorities that are coming out of this crisis is going to be setting up some kind of arrangement that in a crisis that there can be communications between the two sides, because that's the way we're going to handle mismanagement. And as we're getting more and more tension over Taiwan, over the South China Seas, as, you know, China is maybe feeling a bit surrounded because of uh, the AUKUS deal or the Quad deal, which are, you know, various U.S. alliances that are kind of building up in the Indo-Pacific. This is going to be really important going forward. We'll take a quick break and be right back. I'm Jason Fields. And we're back with more of your favorite show, Angry Planet. The other, another aspect of this that I think is really interesting is, and this is something I noticed after uh, the Biden administration started, um, you kind of go through these, the, the public facing communications of the Pentagon has different flavors in every administration. Um, and I would say that the Biden's Biden's Pentagon has been very press savvy, uh, in a way that I don't feel like I've seen since the first, first, since, uh, the first Bush administration, second Bush, um, they proactively called this press conference on Thursday night when they, when they were tracking this thing, they brought all of the press in. They probably could have just ignored this thing and not not said anything, and maybe it would have been uh, it would have been on social media. People would have been talking about it. The Pentagon could have put out a press press release about it or whatever, which happened, by the way, in 2019 when there was one of these above Hawaii. Um, so, like, this has happened repeatedly before, but that's not what they did. They brought all the journalists in on a Thursday night late and had like an hour long press conference where they sat them down and said, "We're tracking this thing. We think it's Chinese." Uh, don't worry, everybody. We can't blow it up now because there's too much debris, but we are we are going to watch this. And every step of the way, they were in contact with the press um, and kind of in control of the story. And I think that's very interesting, too. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has a response. I agree with you completely. Um, if this has happened before and it's not talked about, or if the Pentagon doesn't immediately acknowledge it as a threat or call it a threat, doesn't that mean people wouldn't have reacted like this at all? And, and, and Stephanie pointed out, I think something so important, which is the reaction was massive, massive. We don't shoot things down with Sidewinder missiles very often. I mean, not only are they expensive, I mean, it's just not something you do. I mean, the F 22s first air to air kill, I think. Yes. I mean, it's just, I, I believe the, 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 one of the generals said, uh, Air Force general said, a kill is a kill. So, <laughs> oh, Air Force, sure. good for you. Yeah, it just seems I mean, that is the heaviest hand you could possibly have. Uh, you know, I, I just, yeah, if F-22 versus balloon. The other, 
the other aspect of this I'll bring in, I think the other thing that one of the other reasons they did this is that they, while they're playing for the public, the Pentagon has also gotten really good at playing for Congress, who is their other audience and who, which is in its, an extremely wild body at the moment, if, as anyone that's following U.S. domestic politics will know. Um, and I say this because this fucking UFO thing, the, the alien stuff, people, especially Congress, are watching the skies right now. Um, there is a fascination in the culture and in, and in America's legislative body with the skies. For anyone that kind of doesn't know what's going on there, I'll run down it really quickly. Um, essentially, like, highly credible witnesses that work for the Navy, uh, Navy pilots, uh, other military personnel started coming forward and, and doing things like going on the Joe Rogan podcast to, to talk about the UFOs, or as the DOD calls them, UAPs that they've seen. Um, this caused This caused, like, Marco Rubio in particular to freak out. Uh, and demand answers from the Pentagon. The Pentagon creates this new thing called uh, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which is uh, like an X-Files type organization within the Pentagon that is going to investigate weird stuff in the skies. Uh, they start now every six months or so, there's a news cycle around them issuing a report saying like, okay, we've got, you know, 300 sightings in the last five years that we can't explain of strange things in the sky that are fairly credible this is kind of what they look like. By the way, the most recent report, something like 163 of them were balloon-like objects. Just throwing that out there. Um, and every time this kind of comes into the news cycle, there's people people talk about aliens, right? Um, but I think it's much more... It, my, my suggestion is that these things are probably not aliens, but are in fact various kinds of balloons or drones from spies, essentially from, from near peer competitors that have gotten into the United States. Uh, and the Pentagon enjoys flirting with the idea that they are aliens because um, it makes us not talk about how they're spies in the sky until now. <laughs> now they've taken control of the story in a way that makes it very clear that this stuff um, is probably spycraft uh, and they're willing to blow it up. And I think that's a weird, interesting change in the context of everything else they've been doing in the last couple of years. I, I just think that's so interesting in terms of um, kind of maybe the American or North American psyche with regards to security and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in Canada, I mean, yeah, we have the alien rumors and stuff like that here, too. I don't think we actively published. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, actually, like, I think like two years ago, there was one reporter who just kept coming to me with stuff about alien stuff that the Canadian pilots had seen and unidentified objects and things like that. And asked me to comment. I'm like, I, I am not <laughs> commenting on this because I just, I am not adding, adding the X-Files to my research agenda. But the, I think, you know, what's interesting to me is that, like, we are in North America protected by oceans, right? Um, in Canada, we really just have one border. We technically now have a border with Denmark over Hans Island, which could be a whole other episode. But um, for, uh, for, the, for, for the purpose of this conversation, our really only borders with the United States. Like, we have perfect security, right? And I think in some ways, Americans have always demanded perfect security, right? Like, to annihilate 
um, any potential threats and do so in a way that, you know, is still consistent with values, et cetera, et cetera, which is always a different kind of tension. But I think this is part of the freak out, right? Is that we always have dem- expected perfect security in, in our, in our, in our lives, in our skies and things like that, which makes us very different from other parts of regions of the world, like, Europe, like, uh, you know, Asia and things like that, where there's been like kind of these wars, these large wars, these large conflicts. And so I think this is partially explains the shock that we're just not used to this idea that other nations, you know, even if they have cyber, even if they have like satellites, all these other kind of things, the idea that they would actually send something over into our space, you know, violating our, our sovereignty is just so foreign that it is, I think, a real uh, shock to the system. And um, I don't know, I guess it's prompting different, you know, U.S. Uh, servicemen to go on or women to go on um, uh, these podcasts and, and talk about all the UFOs they've seen. But I think this is why uh, there's just been such this kind of visceral reaction in, in both countries to these to these balloons. And as you say, if as a result of NORAD, NORAD's now saying it's opening its lens, it's going to be looking at more objects um, so if there's going to be more objects that are, are spotted, if some of these UFOs are debunked as, you know, the spy equipment of other countries, I think that's going to have a really interesting impact, I think, on our uh, understanding of security or at least perception of security going forward. And that might change some of our ideas about, you know, what is actually needed for, for our own defense. Well, we're going to run out of sidewinders. Um so I have a question that's totally, to me, related to this. Um, in your piece that you wrote for Newsweek, Stephanie, uh, you mentioned a Gingrich tweet, which um, was just, you know, espousing the EMP theory, right? And I was just wondering if um, if that also is just part of the whole, you know, fear of, of losing perfect security, what do you think? Um, so I, I just love, I mean, we can see each other as we're recording this. I just like the fact that Mac just like did like this eye roll face palm when he heard EMP. And I, think, and I have very much the same reaction every time I hear it. There just seems to be this market for EMP paranoia and fear that people just think that this EMP is going to be the weapon that eventually takes out North America Um and I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why why you would use an EMP? Um, as someone you know once pointed out to me, EMPs you get a free one with every nuclear explosion. Um, you know, I mean, that's kind of. And if you're in a nuclear explosion, like the loss of power is like the last thing you're really going to be worried about. So I don't. Yeah, this EMP thing. I think I think it's along the same lines, right? It's seen. Um, you know what? I think they they remade red dawn a few years ago right and it was an emp that kind of took out north america and uh or at least the united states and made it vulnerable to north korean invasion because of course it did <laughs> well, you'll you'll notice you'll notice in that uh that newt gingrich tweet that he uh explicitly like calls people to buy a book from one of his uh co-author like one of the people that he writes books with I think There's tough. a lot of self-published EMP books out there. I mean, in, in, in a different lifetime, I would have loved to have sat down, read them all and, and done an analysis of, of what this is. But I think it speaks to this larger, as you say, this kind of larger fear of not having perfect security, that there are these kind of perfect super weapons that will be able to take out 
America. And wouldn't it be ironic if it was on a balloon? Uh, you know, the, the <laughs> finest technology of the 19th century. Um, so it, it and, but I mean, of course, like, I mean, it's, it's just so bizarre because like the idea that like, I mean, the kind of resources you need to get an EMP, say, across the Pacific and then detonate properly. Um, it just, it seems a little bit beyond the capacity of a balloon to do that. So, uh, yeah, I know it, but it, you know, and then you had people talking about bioweapons and you had people talking about all these other kinds of things. And it just, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, there, there really is this kind of market for this idea of this kind of perfect weapon that will one day take out, um, America and, um, you know, a lot of those weapons actually already exist. I don't think we have to go too far into uh, making them up. I think uh, this is something that we can, uh, you know, there's there's a lot out there that's already pretty, pretty deadly. You also have talked about some other more genuine threats, um, you know, in, in this piece. And I just was wondering if um, you want to talk about just a little bit of maybe about cyber and tell us a little bit again this is something i think people have forgotten the office of personnel management breach where some 22 million uh people's records were revealed i mean something like that i mean is i mean that's a bigger threat right oh it's an unmistakably bigger threat it is it is a devastating threat, right? I mean, um, that particular cyber incident, right, uh, attributed to China, what had the record of every single government employee, uh, anyone who'd ever applied for clearance, and their friends and family, right? Just the sheer number of people that were in that database is, is unprecedented. And if you think of all the other kinds of of similar attacks, maybe less high profile, but like um, gathering information on who's staying in what hotel near Washington, D.C. and um, other kinds of large databases. I think, you know, the chi- China can put these things together, right? And they can create profiles and they can identify who the actual uh, intelligence assets of the United States are or who in an embassy is actually a spy. And, and these are, this is Devastating. I mean, there's been a lot of reports done on how U.S. assets in China were systematically eliminated, right, um, over over a short period of time. And I think the United States is still trying to reconstruct exactly just how that was done. But I mean, certainly cyber attacks like this are far more damaging to U.S. national interests. And not just, I mean, the Office of Personal Management, I use that because just involved the per you know ever think everyone's freaking out worrying that a spy balloon was watching them for some reason <laughs> um no but i mean but there's these programs that are gathering these pieces of data and knitting them together in ways that they can develop profiles on people um there's you know widespread corporate espionage and not just in terms of gathering information about research and development, but also gathering research on um, plans for mergers and acquisitions, um, plans for business dealings and all these kinds of things that have largely sought to kind of uh, undermine uh, economic deals, for example, or to outbid or outcompete them where it's believed to kind of serve um, Chinese national interests, right? The, the geoeconomic strategies of the United, uh, sorry, of of China have very much depended on these uh, cyber intrusions that they've been able to successfully conduct over time. And these are the kinds of things that really worry me, but you know, they're not floating in the sky. 
So people people don't see them. They go, oh, yeah, hacked again. And they just go on with their lives because there's no immediate consequence to them. But, you know, the real consequence is felt, you know, 5, 10, 20 years down the road when, um, you know, you do have the, the kind of either economic damage or, you know, you find that kind of maybe your spy network has been uh, eliminated in, in the country that you're using. It's interesting to me that, you know, mention corporate espionage, uh, I think. People in this country, I was talking to a crazy person yesterday who happens to be a, a very close friend. Um, and he, you know, had some interesting ideas, but he did talk about the fact that, you know, China, the government and corporations have this relationship that's not like what we have in the United States. I mean, and to think that they're separate is to make a huge mistake, right? I mean, yeah. That, that's exactly right. So one of the key issues that I think we're seeing in in the West generally is this, the, the issue with state-owned enterprises, right? I mean, there's really kind of two angles. So first of all, there's the state-owned enterprises. Now, a lot of countries do have some kind of state-owned enterprise. For example, in Canada, uh, we have a very large territory, a very small population. So we have um, Canada Post, which is like our U.S. Postal Service, uh, which is basically a, a crown, what we call a crown corporation. It, it's kind of a government, arms-length government agency that was set up in order to run mail in this country because it was never going to be profitable in order to do so, right? And so that's an example of, of, of a kind of government-controlled agency. But it's again, it's arm's length. It is responsible to the government, but it's not full-on, everyday controlled by the government. It doesn't always do the government's bidding. Um, whereas in China, for example, a lot of these companies uh, may be directed to invest in um uh, uh, you know, certain areas, uh, in order to, um, buy up R and D, uh, for example, research and development, you know, we want to gain expertise in a certain area. So we want to buy up, um, you know, companies that are working on renewables or companies that are working on, um, solar panels and things like this, because yeah, we're spending millions of dollars to buy the company, but the intellectual property we were getting is worth billions. So that's one example. And again, and that's not illegal, right? Like that's the challenge. Like that's not an illegal thing. It's, 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 it's a bit of a gray tactic, but it's not an illegal thing. And I think companies, you know, what we've seen are countries increasingly using their legislation to restrict certain investments that they believe would ultimately harm their, their national interests. And then you have also um, a, cer- a certain set of national security laws that were passed in the last five years by the Chinese government, which essentially require any Chinese company or any company, I believe, operating in China to support the Chinese government in its goals, should it be asked to. And this has played a major role in the debate over companies like Huawei, for example, the the Chinese telecommunications company that, um, you know, in places like Europe and places like Canada, um, you know, I think the U.S. was pretty quick to jump on Huawei. But uh, the fact is that, you know, if um, it was ever requested by the Chinese government, would Huawei actually give, you know, say information to the government of China? Would it shut down communications? And as we're moving into an era of 5G and where 5G becomes part of our critical infrastructure, is that something, is that a risk that we're willing to tolerate? So yeah, I know, I think this is, this is part of it, right? That, um, you know, one of the, again, the biggest challenges are the ones we don't really see. And in the case of Chinese companies, they're not even illegal necessarily, right? Um, the, you know, the Chinese can come out and say, look, we're just doing what you guys do. 
We're just better at it than you are. But the Chinese, you know, it, but, you know, the issue with Chinese state-owned enterprises in particular is that they're not necessarily efficient. Um, they actually, you know, um, one of the big issues here, and again, I'm sorry to use Canadian examples, but uh, we've allowed a lot more Chinese foreign investment into Canada than I think the United States has. And now we're having conversations about whether that was a good idea. But, um, you know, we had a, an oil company that was bought by uh, CNOC, the Chi- Chinese National Oil Overseas Corporation, and has not run the company well at all. And there's been layoffs and there's been challenges with that company uh, ever since. So um, these companies are not necessarily good at uh, efficient or good. And if anything, Rather than becoming more efficient over time, they're actually becoming larger and more cumbersome. And the ultimate concern, I think, at least in smaller countries, uh, like in your, in Europe and in Canada, that if a, a large state owned enterprise comes to Canada or even a large private Chinese company like Huawei can come to Canada because they have the support of the state that they ultimately can um, undercut all competition until they ultimately control a particular sector and undermine all possible competition, giving them a de facto monopoly over a potentially strategic area. So again, it's hard because not all this is illegal, but it is a real economic national security, I think, is, is going to be the big challenge of the 21st century. Sorry, that was a very long answer. It's a great answer. It's something I'm really interested in. <laughs> No, no, no. Um, I actually, I would just say, though, if you're doing all of that, I, too, might go, hey, look, a balloon. <laughs> or uh, <clears throat> the another, you know, let me ask you this kind of picking up that thread about uh, specifically American anxieties around Chinese companies. What do you make of TikTok? <laughs> I'm not on it. <laughs> I encourage my students not to be on it. Um, look, on the one hand, I don't think it's good, right? Okay. I, I don't think it's good. I, I do worry that, you know, you can get access, to, you know, it, it provides access to a large amount of data about the U.S. population to a government that, uh, you know, is not always, you know, the, you know, we describe as an adversary. I think that's, that's, that's a bad thing in and of itself. But I mean, I, I think this is, this is the, this, uh, let me let me use the Huawei example as a reason why I think we have to be careful about the TikTok conversation. Because with Huawei, um, when it came to this big discussion about banning Huawei in Canada, everyone thinks, okay, we're going to ban Huawei, we're going to be safe, right? We're going to make Canada safer. When no, it's not true at all. Because like all the other uh, telecommunications companies have giant holes in their cybersecurity that are being exploited. I always say, like, you know, China doesn't need Huawei to get to spy on, you know, United States or Canada or any other country. It's doing it right now and it's doing it fairly well. And I think this is also the case with TikTok, right? Like, I mean, if we ban TikTok um, or if we force a divester or whatever it is, um, I think that it's not going to solve the problem because a lot of companies are willing to sell data. You know, a lot of these social media companies are out there selling the personal information of Americans and Canadians and anyone else who's using their platforms and trying to just get that information that way too. So it's not enough just to plug, you know, I, I feel like, you know, there's like many different leaks in the dam and we're kind of trying to poke our fingers in trying to stop all the leaks. But uh, we focus on these one things when it's, it's really much broader threat that we should be having in terms of privacy data and things like that. And that's, what's actually going to protect 
uh, Americans, Canadians and things like that. If we can get that straight of just banning TikTok in and of itself isn't going to solve the problem, even if I do have my reservations about letting China have it. If nothing else, IQ uh, points would go up if people stopped using TikTok. So I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. I'm going to throw. I'm, no, I think no, that no. aspect I, may be a moral panic. I mean, I'm on oh, Instagram. No, I, I'm, and I'm using Instagram yeah. just to see the TikToks I'm missing. Right. I, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I use. I mean, I would love to be on TikTok. I think. I mean, I miss Vine. If everyone remembers Vine, Vine oh, is amazing. Vine. And uh, they, they killed Vine. Bring back Vine, Elon Musk. Um, and if, 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 you hear, if you do one thing, bring back Vine. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, you can see why people use it, right? It's yeah. fun. It's now the dominant kind of social media platform. And it's changing the way um, people communicate. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm just not smart enough to use it. Let's be honest. No, you're it's, just you're just old. It's like programming the VCR. You know, <laughs> what, I'm still if, trying to reprogram my VCR. What if we put episodes of Fantasy Island on TikTok? There we go oh. in, in three <laughs> discrete three minute chunks. It's like what was that platform that like Quibi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quibi. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, Poor dumb Quibi. Such uh, a terrible idea. So Matthew, do you have anything else? Yeah, let me let me run through America's balloon programs real quick, uh, just because I teased it earlier, and then we'll get out of here. Um, so another another thing that happened in 2019 that was pretty interesting: uh, people started seeing strange objects in the sky above Montana. Uh, DARPA came out and was like, "Hey, those are ours. Don't worry about it. We're just working on high altitude balloons." Um, so there's you know that little data point. Um, also, I mean, we've, we've looked, we've looked at using high altitude balloons repeatedly, especially in the fifties and sixties. Um, and the, like the EMP stuff is, is crazy, but like bioweapons, like there's, there's old DOD plans to use balloon delivery to like, uh, drop, uh, crop killer basically, uh, above countries. And they tested it and it worked. They never deployed it. Uh, they shelved that thing, but uh, it's something that the, the, the Pentagon looked at. Uh, probably the most famous use of American balloons uh, are low altitude, uh, or maybe the most recent. Um, and they're surveillance equipment. They look like dirigibles. They look like the Goodyear blimp, a little bit smaller. Um, and they're tethered, so they don't free float, because balloons, as they get higher in altitude, are a pain in the ass to control. Um but yeah, you basically float a balloon at low altitude, like sub a thousand feet, um, and have it, you know, watch Kabul or Afghanistan, uh, or increasingly uh, the U.S. southern border. Uh, there's something like 15 of these things, I think, along the U.S. southern border. Um, Department of Homeland Security loves them. Uh, the footage from one of these became instrumental in prosecuting uh, a criminal case against. Robert Bales, who was a soldier in Kabul that killed, I think is convicted of killing 16 Afghan civilians. And they got it. They used the, the balloon surveillance to capture him uh, and prosecute the crime. So like this stuff is real. Like we are using it. Uh, it gets dicey when you get up into the high altitudes though. So just wanted to put that context on the whole thing before we, before we get out of here. 
I mean, that that doesn't surprise me, the idea that the Pentagon would use balloons in some ways. And, you know, China's claim that there's now 10 balloons over China right now. I mean, might be true. Might I be don't real. know. Yeah. It might be real. I don't want to totally discount it because, uh, you know, the Pentagon ex- has a large budget in which to experiment with things. And um, who knows? Maybe there could be some purpose in the future uh, for for balloons. H.G. Wells, you know, mm-hmm. get your H.G. Wells on. This is going to be it's going to be pretty amazing. Uh, but I, I mean, I do agree with your broader point about like Americans being really good at sublimating their anxiety about security concerns, which I think is absolutely true. I think that is probably was probably at the heart of the last time we were watching this guys in this country and real paranoid in like the fifties and sixties. Uh, we had just come out of, which war- also saw a large alien boom. Exactly. Right? No, no, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The, the, uh, because in the 19, during world war two, we had the, there were Jap- Japan was floating balloons filled with explosives into the country. Uh, and, you know, I think, uh, was it killed a boy scout troop? I think was the only deaths, um, got caught up in, in killed a boy scout troop. And America was literally asking and training civilians to look up at the sky and watch for stuff coming into the country. Like that was a known program. Well, of course the next 20 years, the fifties and the sixties, you have a giant panic around weird stuff in the sky around UFOs that gets kind of sublimated into a threat about aliens, right? Like it makes, it makes perfect sense. And I think a similar thing is going on right now. That's all I got. Thank you, Matthew Galt. (laughs) All right. Uh, Stephanie Carvin, you have been wonderful, and I hope you'll come back on the show. Um, and Anytime, thank- whether to talk about 1970s television, uh, aliens, paranoia, or Chinese espionage, it sounds like. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm so chuffed that you invited me. So thank you again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers, eh? Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin McGill. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe.